Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. So this morning we're going to be moving on from our, our last theme, which was the partnership of the generations, into one that really does connect very well, which is the fact that we're going to be talking about identity. Identity in Christ, identity in who he has called us to be. I have to say that of all the messages that I've preached throughout the years in youth group and church, this topic is probably the one that I have spoken on the most in some way, shape, or form. Because identity and our identity in Christ is such a significant part of who we are when we call ourselves Christians, when we worship together and we say that we have the authority. Where does that come from? It comes from Him knowing who He is and knowing who we are in Him. But because I've talked about this identity thing so much, I was thinking about, you know, maybe we should call it something different. So I typed in identity in the thesaurus online and I was trying to see another like title that would work. The only one that I came up with that I liked was selfdom. Has anyone ever heard of selfdom before? I didn't really know it was a word, but I didn't think it really sounded that great as a title. So we're going to stick with identity here this morning. We're going to stick with identity. It's a good one, right? I tried. I wanted to be a little creative, but we got to go back to what works. In this last theme, the partnership of the generations, we kept saying this, this simple phrase, and it's because it's so important. You and you and you and you and everyone in this room has something that somebody else needs. God has placed something inside of you that is meant for someone else as well to be able to help them on their walk, to be able to help them discover who they are, to be able to bring wisdom or discernment or whatever it is into their life. You have something that someone else needs. In order for us to bring something to somebody else, however, we have to know who we are. If we are going to bring something to someone else, we have to first know who God has created us to be. God said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and I set you apart. He was speaking to Jeremiah, but he's speaking to each one of us as well. God has created us in his image, in his likeness. There is something that we have to offer, but first we have to understand our identity in Christ. So this week we're going to look at Uh, A passage of scripture which we know very well. We're going to look at the first part of it and we're going to carry it into next week. But it's found in Judges chapter 6. And in Judges chapter 6, we see a familiar story where the nation of Israel has found themselves in trouble again. They have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord again. And now they find themselves in a not so good situation. And this is really just the initial part of this is a story of what it looks like when we don't know our identity and we seek for it in other places. So Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves that are in the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops... The Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, leaving no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would be like locusts in number. 
Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. The circumstances got really bad. They saw they had no way out. They were hiding in the caves and the dens and the strongholds. They were, they were finding places to, to conceal themselves so that they wouldn't be attacked or they wouldn't have their goods stolen from them. And when they came to this point, it says they turned to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord in verse 7, on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But, but you have not obeyed my voice. God was reminding them of something. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. I am the one who brought you out of bondage. I am the one who gave you this land. I am the one who drove them out before you. Remember who I am. But listen, you haven't been listening to me. You haven't been paying attention to what I've been speaking. You haven't heard what my voice was saying and you haven't seen the identity that I have for you. How many times in our lives does it take a difficult situation for us to stop and to turn back to him and to ask for help? How many times do we have to look in the situations of our life and realize things are not going the way that I expected? Maybe I should do something different here. Maybe I should turn back to God. This is exactly what they were doing. God was saying, listen, I'm speaking. You're not listening. Are you ready to listen yet? Are you paying attention yet? Now that you are under the hand of the Midianites who are stealing everything you have, are you ready to hear what I am saying to you? We go on to see in Judges chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, that even in this place, when they cried out to God, he sent them a prophet. And as he always does because of his grace and his mercy, He makes a way for them to come back to a place of right relationship with him. He makes a way for them to be able to come back and to find the deliverance that only comes from him. Our God is a good God. Our God is an amazing God. So we see here in verse 11, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abirzerite. While his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. This is the first thing we have to see here today. The Lord has a picture of you that doesn't necessarily match your current situation. The Lord has an identity, he has a picture, he has a plan for your life that does not necessarily match your current circumstance or situation. Is that good news for anybody in here this morning? 
When God speaks, he is not looking at the situation that surrounds us. He's not looking at what we are up against. And can I tell you today, he's not even looking at your failures and your shortcomings and the things you've done wrong and the mistakes you've made. He is looking at a picture that is found in heaven. We look at the temporary present situation, but he views things from eternity. He views us from eternity. But it's so important that our identity is found in what he is seeing and what he is saying, because when our identity is found in us, then our strength is found in us, then our understanding is found in us, and it is not found in the king of kings, the one who has ultimate power, ultimate authority, and the ability to change every situation that we could find ourselves in. Our identity needs to be found in him. My question today is how does God see you? Not how do you see yourself. How does God see you? Gideon responds to this word from God, calling him a mighty man of valor. He says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. You see, the people were talking. Now, it's a good thing on some level because God did say, don't let the word and the law depart from your mouth. Tell the next generations of all that I've done. That was good. But their interpretation of this is that, well, God has left us. Where is God? Why is he not here? Failing to see what it said in verse 1 is that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God comes to us sometimes and he says, I want you to do this. This is who I've made you to be. And, and our first response is, well, where have you been? Why am I facing the situation that I'm facing? If I am who you say that I am, why am I dealing with these things? Well, God responds as he often does. He doesn't answer Gideon's question at all. He says, and the Lord turned to him and, and, and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Am I not the one who have sent you? I'm not worried about your questions about where I've been. I need you to see who I have called you to be. Am I not the one who is sending you? This letter I is the most powerful letter in all of the universe when it's referring to God. When it's referring to the great I am, it's the most powerful letter in the universe because it's saying, did not I, the one who created you, the one who created the universe, am I not the one who am calling you? Stop looking at the other things. Stop looking at the distraction. Stop thinking for one second and one moment in time that I have failed you because I haven't. And I am calling you to do something right now that's greater than obviously you have any ability to understand. He says, go in this might of yours. What might? He's hiding in a wine press. He's hiding from the enemy so that they don't come and steal his stuff. There is no might to be seen. But once again, God is not speaking to the circumstance. He's speaking to the picture that he has of Gideon because he knows the beginning to the end. 
Just as God saw something in Gideon, he sees something in you. Just as God saw something in Gideon, he sees something in you. And when we see this, when we see these words being spoken, what we have to realize is that there is simply a response from us that has to say yes and has to own it. We have to say, yes, God, I I see that you have something greater for me. And yes, I'm going to step into that identity. Because the tendency, once again, is to say, what about my failure? What about my inadequacy? What about my past? What about my shortcomings? No, it's not about those things. It's not about your past. It's not about the places where you haven't matched up to what you expected or what God expected of you. It's not in that place. That is not where your identity is found. So Gideon responds to God. God says, do not I send you. And he says in verse 15, as we often do, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. How many times is this us? God, you can't use me. How are you going to use me? What are you going to do with my life? And maybe we don't think these thoughts, but we certainly behave like we believe these things are true. It's maybe not that God calls us to do something and we're standing there as Moses saying, I can't do this, send somebody else. But our, our emotions, our feelings... The physical manifestation of these things at times seems to point to the fact that we're believing a lie. When we receive a bad piece of information, when we're up against a circumstance or a trial, what happens to us physically? Does peace wash over us? Or do we feel the anxiety and the tension? Do we feel the manifestation of the emotions inside of us? You see, even though we may not be thinking these thoughts on a level that we can understand, there is something that takes place inside of us that indicates we're believing something other than what God has spoken. And in those moments, what we often do is then we try to distract ourselves instead of going to the root of what we're actually feeling, of what we're actually believing. Why do I feel this way? Why has this been my experience and what is the lie that is underneath all of it? We have to go deeper. We have to go into these places. Verse 16, but the Lord said to him in response, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man or as if you were up against one man and one man alone. The Midianites are too many to count, but God said, if I'm with you, It doesn't matter if there's hundreds of thousands. You're going to go up against them like it was one man because I'm with you. Whatever the situation is that we're facing today, if we know that we're walking into it with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, it doesn't matter how big it is. Because if I am with you, if God is with you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we are facing when we know who we are when we know who he has created us to be and what has been made possible for us through Jesus' death on the cross. We start to see a response here from Gideon. At first, the response is, 
God, I can't do this. I'm the least. My clan's the least. It's not going to happen. But as God continues to speak, there is a shift that starts to take place inside of Gideon. When God starts to speak, there is something that is being ignited inside of Gideon where he starts to look at a different possibility. This is what the word of God is meant to be for us. We read the word of God, the truth of his word, and it starts to change our perception about what we think is possible and what he is able to do through us. So there's two things that Gideon does. The first thing he does is he recognizes the supremacy of God and he brings something to him in response. We see this in verse 18. He says, please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon goes to the house. He gets the offering. He gets the sacrifice. Verse 20 says, and the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on the rock, pour the broth over them. And he did so. And then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Gideon, at some point in time in this interaction, in this process, this process that we're all on, from where we are to where he's taking us, he recognizes something. All right, I may not be able to, but God is the supreme one. He is the source of power. I have to do something in response to who he is. So he takes what he has and he brings it before God. And I wrote this in the margins of my Bible at one point, I don't remember when, but what I wrote down was we bring what we have to offer before him, the sacrifice, and then he brings the fire. We bring what we have, and then he does the rest. He brings the fire. He brings the power. Without that, it's just another sacrifice that we have to offer. But when we say yes to him, when we entrust him with what we have, he brings what we need that we could never bring on our own. So that was the first step. He recognizes the supremacy of God and offers a sacrifice to him. The second step is this. This goes a step beyond. Verse 25 says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, And the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with the stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. All right, so he's obedient. He's still in process. He may not be doing it perfectly. He's still feeling the things. There are times where we are going to still feel the emotions and still feel the feelings and still feel the fear and the anxiety when we're being obedient to what God's calling us to do. 
Don't allow the feelings inside of you to be the things that will stop you from doing what God has called you to do. Don't allow the things that come up inside of you in those moments to prevent you from being obedient. Say yes. Bring what you have to offer and let him do the rest. And this is what he does. He goes out, he tears everything down. He tears down the previous images of provision. It shouldn't be lost on us that this was his father's shrine or altar. It shouldn't be lost on us that what he's doing is he's pulling down his family's way of doing things. There are things that have been passed down through our families at times where we do the same things that our parents did and our grandparents did. Where we treat situations the same way that we've always seen and it's time to tear those things down because God wants to do something different. And this is what Gideon does. He tears these things down and he breaks off some of the curses that are being associated with the fact that his family is worshiping Baal and having the Asherah. And then he takes those things and he creates a new altar to God out of the very same things that he had torn down. He, he creates an altar out of the very things that were being used as looking at the provision of somebody else. And God is able to use those things to then bring him to a new place of obedience. So of course, the people of the town come out and they're super excited when they wake up in the morning. I'm so happy that our favorite altar to Baal has been torn down. Of course not. Verses 28 through 32, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down. The Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. Where is this story taking place again? In Israel? With the chosen people of God? The the men and women that he led out of slavery? The, The people that he had set aside and said, this is my chosen people? These are the ones that are asking for the death of Gideon because he broke down an altar to another God and set one up to Yahweh? And Gideon has the nerve to ask, where have you been? This is what has been taking place. But the cool thing about this story is that in this moment, Joash, his dad, he stands up and he stands up for his son. I don't know if anyone in here has ever had their dad come to their rescue or stand up for them. I have had this happen many times. Thank you, dad. I've had some cool stories that have come out of it. Maybe I'll share those at another time. But when you know your dad has your back, that's a pretty big deal. So Joash shows up and he says, listen, we know that this has been cut down, but who, who are you to try and, and stand up on behalf of this God Baal? Will you contend to him, for him in verse 31 or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. Remember, this is his altar. This is his deal. But he says, don't touch my son. Anyone who contends for Baal, you're going to be put to death. 
And then he says these words, and this is what really I want to look at today. Whoever contends to him shall be put to death by mourning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself. If he is a God, if he has any power, let him do it by by himself. Let, Let him do his own thing. It's his altar that's been taken down. Let Baal handle his own business. You see, this is the question that we have to be asking in our lives. The things that we have served, the things that we have allowed to exist as sources of provision, the things that we have gone to in times of trouble, the things that we have allowed to continue to to have a voice in our lives, what good are they doing for us? And do they have the ability to produce any life whatsoever? We need to start to put our idols on trial. If you're doing anything for me, okay, but let's be honest. What our idols do is they distract us and they give us some semblance of comfort, but they never ever produce any life. They never change the situation. They never do anything that's actually going to add value to us. And so the question that we have to ask, I think my dad's asked me this question a few times too. How's that working out for you? How's the way that we've been doing things? How's that working out for you? The things that we've gone to, what are they doing for us? Because if we were to really stop and to ask that question and to look for the answer, we would realize the things that we've gone to very rarely make anything better because if they're not God, they have no ability to fix it, to change it, or to actually transform us or the situation. We as a nation have to start asking this question. How, how's these things working out for us? The pursuit of money. When it comes to greed and it comes to this place of idolatry with money. When it comes to this need for spiritual autonomy where we say, God, we've got this. We don't need you anymore. The places where we've gone into postmodernism and metamodernism and, and humanism and secularism and all of these things. How's that working out for us? The leaders that we've elected because they say nice things and they, they allow people to do what they want to do because they have lowered the, the value and the standard of morality down below, below the point where we can actually look at it anymore or see it. How is that working out for us? It doesn't work. And yet we've allowed these things to stay We've empowered these things. We fought for these things. And when someone comes in our life and pulls them down, we have an emotional response. Someone bumps into our identity. Someone questions the image that we've put forward and we're ready to fight. Don't question who I am. Don't question this this image that I've worked so hard to put forward. And we do the same thing that the men of Gideon's tribe were doing. We want to go on the attack mode. Because this is what we've worked so hard to put forward. How's that working out for you? How's that working out for me? Will we allow the idols to stay? Will we allow the images that we've erected to be there? We read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5, through 5, where people are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. This cannot be the church. This cannot be the body of Christ. 
Our identity cannot be found in these things. It must be found in who we are when we understand who God is, how much he loves us, and everything he did to restore us to relationship with him. We continue to read this story. And the amazing thing is we start to see the results of Gideon's obedience. We start to see the results of Gideon starting to accept who God has called him to be. It says in Judges 6, verse 33, Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Isn't it amazing that God shows up and he's speaking and this is when the enemy decides to come in? God says, mighty man of valor, I'm going to use you to to free the people of Israel. And just like on cue, everyone shows up. They're ready. Let's, Let's wipe them out again. Let's destroy them further. But we get to this line in in verse 34. Best part of the story. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. But the spirit of the Lord empowered Gideon. The spirit of the Lord took off this old identity that that Gideon had given to him and said, okay, this is who I thought I was, but I'm going to say yes to you, Jesus. I'm going to say yes to you, God. I'm going to tear down the old way of doing things. And now in its place, he receives a new identity. He's clothed in the power of God. He has taken off the old. He has put on the new. And it says that he is empowered by God. When we are obedient to lay aside the identities that are not from God, we make room for him to clothe us with who he says that we are. When we get rid of the old things, he brings the new. You know, if we are going to be who God needs us to be in this time, on the earth, in this world, with all the pain and the confusion and the hurt, we need to be clothed with something else other than our own identity, than our own understanding. But are we willing to detach from the old? Which I I talk about it like it's a decision we make because it is, but it's not easy. It's more like a tearing It's more like something that's been attached to us. It's not just as easy as saying, okay, I'm not going to be that person anymore. But it is to recognize that the power to make this change comes from the grace of God. That God, I need your grace. This stuff that has been ingrained in who I am, I need your grace. The ways that I've been thinking, the ways I've been feeling, I need your grace. And that when these moments come up where these things rear their ugly heads, that we take the opportunity to say, God, remove this thing right now. I need your power. God, I don't want it anymore. I I, I come out of agreement with it. I'm choosing to say no to this as many times as I need to. And I'm continuing to put on your identity time and time again if I need to, because I want to be who you have called me to be. We need to be the ones who would do this in this time.